When they do that, thank you, man of God. Yeah, man. Man, the Lord knew to do me right. Man, I didn't want to be left. I would have been sad if I would have been left out. But then that my brother said, I was in. Come on, open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. I love being around God's people, amen? There's nobody like God's people. I just want to thank you all again on behalf of my family for the appreciation that you all shared last week during pastor appreciation. We certainly feel appreciated. I feel bad for depressed, lonely pastors. I know they're out there, but I am not one. If there's ever like a tear coming down my eye and I feel alone, somebody just needs to slap me up my, upside my head and be like, Pastor, remember what they did for you. They love you. We came home with like 30, 40 envelopes of just people being grateful and thankful. And uh, I've been waiting to read them because I want to do it with my children because I don't want the church kids, I don't want the PK kids, pastor kids growing up with a bad understanding of church because sometimes they hear mom and dad dealing with stuff in the kitchen. You know, we have to let them, let them know, hey, go into the other room. So I actually want to read those um, letters that you all gave to my family one by one as we continue to pray for you. Amen. We love this church. Open up your Bibles, John chapter 12, verse Verse 12, somebody say, Hosanna. Hosanna. Today's message is called Hosanna because it's in our text. Jesus is now coming into Jerusalem. We're going verse by verse in the book of John through first service by God's grace, Hebrews second service. So check out those messages as well. And you might be thinking because of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we're getting to the end, that um, John's probably about ready to come to a close. Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, the palm branches, and before you know it, it's going to be Good Friday. Day, the crucifixion, and so forth. But if you have a paper Bible, just flip some pages there in front of you. Uh, there's a lot left in the book of John. Just go ahead and take a look at it. There's a lot left. And if you got a Bible that has red letters, or just scroll on your phone, you're going to see a lot of red letters. You're going to encounter the largest uninterrupted section of Jesus' teaching in all the four Gospels. Now, why is that there in John and not the Synoptic Gospels? More than likely, John was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and since he already knew their message, he wanted to give them things that they had not mentioned, the other teachings of Jesus. And so what I want you to start to do is prepare yourself for the chapters that proceed. Start to read them. Get an understanding of what's going on there because in the next few weeks, we're going to go through some of the deepest teachings of Jesus that he wanted us to know in this generation. And there's going to be a key person that is going to be brought up in those chapters that is going to, uh, like, change church as we know it, and it's why the way, it's why we are the way we are. Some may say the Holy Spirit. Amen. So those chapters, especially 14, 15, and 16, are going to be powerful. But today, let's talk about his entrance. He's coming into Jerusalem. Look at chapter 12, verse 12 with me. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting. What were they shouting? Hosanna. Somebody shouted out. Hosanna. 
And what that means is, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Blessed is the king of Israel. We're going to go to the psalm in which that comes from in just a moment. But staying there in our text, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. We'll get that prophecy in Zechariah as well in just a moment. But if you know the synoptic gospels, you know the story of the donkey. You know how that was brought about by them going and asking a person for it. Now we go to verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now let's just pause here for a moment and get the understanding of what John is telling us. This helps us know that the Bible is not myth. It's historical, biographical information. Somebody say historical and biographical. This is not myth. This is not written in the genre of myth. They had myths at that time. They had their Marvel comics around, okay? There was a way that they did myth. Myth is not like this. Here you see in the historical account, in the biography of Jesus, John the author tells us that the disciples, and this would include him, did not understand all of this. What this means is the story is unfolding in front of them and they don't get it. They only get it after the resurrection. And so what they want you to understand is that during this time, it was mysterious to them. They couldn't put it all together. And why would John stop at this moment and say that? This is prophecy. They should have gotten it, right? Like Psalm is a prophecy. Zechariah is a prophecy. The Hosanna, the, uh, the coming in of a king on a donkey. But why didn't they get it? The reason why they didn't get it is because it wasn't happening the way they thought it should happen. Everybody get this. The Jewish people at that time thought if the Messiah was going to come and the Messiah was going to be a king, he was going to have conquered the enemies and then come into Jerusalem. But is Rome conquered at this time? No, Rome is still conquering them. And in one sense, it's going to even get worse at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. In other words, bad times are still yet ahead. When the Messiah comes, when the party starts, and you're shouting Hosanna, and you're watching him come on the colt, what that means is, is that everything now is at peace. The world is perfect. The kingdom of God is on earth among men. But what are they, what are they actually seeing? They're seeing just a dude come down on a donkey. The, you know, they're not seeing the victory. They're not seeing the power. They're not seeing the fireworks as it were. They're not watching the emperors of, of that time and the emperor of Rome and the nations, you know, come and bow before their Messiah. They're not seeing any of that. All they're seeing is just a man coming in on a donkey and some people shouting and getting excited. Now can you understand the great disappointment that they then feel at the crucifixion? The confusion that they now would feel because in one sense, they, they might say, well, we got the timeline wrong. Maybe he comes in first and then he conquers, even though it's supposed to be the other way around. You conquer and then you come into the city and you, you know, have your party. So it's like, okay, well, maybe we got the timeline wrong here, but it doesn't get better. It gets worse. 
he ends up getting arrested, and he doesn't fight back. Hence, Peter trying to fight back. Let's, okay, let's start it now. Let's, let's do it now. We're ready now. And it gets even worse than that. They watch him get beaten. And then the unthinkable, everybody gets this, get this, the unthinkable will happen. They will watch their Messiah, the one they put their whole trust in, the one that they left their jobs for, the, ones, uh, the one that they left their family for. They're going to watch him be stripped naked and bloodied and whipped and put on a cross to die like a criminal. Do you see now the emotions of the disciples that, that are going to go back to fishing? Going to say, it's over. And then Thomas is going to say, well, man, I, I can't even believe this. I mean, I think you guys are just having hallucinations. You really haven't seen him. You just miss him so bad you wish you could see him. You know what? I won't believe until I actually touch him. Now you understand why. So what happens in chapter 12 really is not being understood. Now we understand it. We're like, all right, let's get to the good part. But we got to go to the bad part first, right? But, but we're already in our mind, what are we saying? Let's get to the good part. Let, let's, okay, let's come on, let's go, let's go. Okay, they're going to they're gonna whip him and beat him. That's going to be said. Let's get to the resurrection. They're, they're not thinking that. They don't understand that. Think about that. John, the closest one to Jesus, even writing this book, says at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after, somebody say only after. Thank you. Only after Jesus was glorified, that means his resurrection, did they realize that all these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Oh, okay. Well, now we get it. And so I want you to, to see this, that the reason why they understand these prophecies now the way they do, and this is a big difference between us and Jewish people who are Jewish not only in their ethnicity and their cultural background, but are Jewish in religion, it's because no one quite understood how these prophecies were going to work. Today, if you talk to a Jew by religion, he says, I believe in the Jewish faith, or she says, I am a Jew by the, by the faith of uh, Abraham, Moses, and Abraham, Moses, and all of these people, these prophets, what they will say to you is the reason why we reject Jesus is because we don't see Jesus fulfilling the prophecies the way we think he should have. One of the first things they'll say to you is, well, where's all the peace? Because the Bible says he's the prince of peace. When the Messiah comes, he brings peace. They'll say, where is the establishment of Jerusalem as the center of the nations? Because when the Messiah comes, he rules from Jerusalem and all the nations come and serve him. Where is that if that's your Messiah? But what must you do? You and I must explain to people, like the modern-day Jew, what these Jews, because remember, the early Christians were Jews, how the prophecy was to be understood. Somebody say, already and not yet. You see, there's a kingdom that has come in Christ, but it's not the fullness of the kingdom coming. Now, first and foremost, the kingdom is Jesus, so wherever he is, there is the kingdom. But there is a manifestation, there is a bringing forth of the kingdom where all of those things will happen. But it has not happened yet. And it doesn't even happen after the resurrection. Quickly, please go to Acts chapter 1, and then we'll finish reading this. Go to Acts chapter 1. Even after the resurrection, somebody say, after the resurrection, the disciples 
ask these very questions. What would you ask Jesus if you had a chance to talk to him after the resurrection? You want to know what the disciples asked him about? Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Imagine how long that had to go on for before everybody was convinced. I mean, don't get it twisted. Probably Thomas was not the only one. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. How many days? 40 days after the resurrection. He's hanging out with them, right? He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about what? He just talked about heaven and angels and what it's going to be like up there so you can go fishing. (laughs) No, what did he talk about? The kingdom of God. After, look at this, or on one occasion, we don't know if it was directly after the 40 days, but on one occasion, in the discussion about the kingdom of God. See, most of you think you already got it because you went to a couple Sunday school lessons. After 40 days of discussing, or around that time of discussing the kingdom of God, the disciples still asked him, do not, they asked him right here, will you establish the kingdom of God? Lord, verse 6, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of God? After him being with them. That entire time, 40 days of explaining, and even the verse before that says, don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, they still ask, at this time, somebody say, at this time. At this time, verse 6, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why is that important to understand in the context of John chapter 12? They still had not yet gotten it. I believe that there were disciples even in the upper room waiting for the Holy Ghost that still didn't understand what we're living in right now, the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here because the kingdom of God is within us, the King Christ, but the kingdom of God has not yet come to Israel, to the nations, and to our Messiah, Jesus, has not yet set his feet upon the Mount of Olives ruling from that city. So what do we do in the meantime? The verse that comes before it, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water. But in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then now go to verse 8, please. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my what? Witnesses, thank you, in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what's going to happen Before King Jesus conquers the world, he's going to conquer the hearts of men and women. Hallelujah. Do you get that? Going back to John chapter 12. See, they didn't get that. And I thank God that they did because my Roman ancestry wouldn't have a place in the kingdom of God. My Italian ancestry, my Polish ancestry wouldn't have had a place. I don't know if there's many Jewish people here today, but we all who are non-Jewish would have been left out of that kingdom. And yet, because God had his heart on the nations, the promise he made to Abraham to bring his message to all nations through Abraham, he had to now establish the church for the kingdom of God's sake. The church is the gathering of God's people for the kingdom of God. And the church will be made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language, and every people group. Amen? And so when we look at this part of the story and we see them shouting out Hosanna, what we need to see is our king comes in gentleness. The king came in gentleness. And yet they were looking at first for the warrior. 
And so often, yes, we want Jesus to be the warrior, but be careful what you ask for. Because at that time, if he would have came as a warrior, what would have happened to the Mayans? <laughs> what would have happened to the Incans? What would have happened to the tribes of Africa? What would have happened to the Europeans? All of those barbarians out there, as the Romans called them, would have been destroyed, would have been made subjects in the kingdom. And would not have had the opportunity to know the Messiah as the Jewish people did. Now, God could have done that and still been fair because all nations had come from one man, one race, the human race, through Adam and Eve. And God would have been fair to punish those nations because they didn't get there by accident. When you read about after the flood and the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they knew the stories of their daddy and what he had said. That's why in every major culture there's a flood story and or myth. And they knew the protocols of sacrifice and of morality. That's why almost all world religions share the same practices of morality and they have a sacrificial code. And yet it would have been God's right. He would have been just to judge every one of those fallen nations because they didn't get there by accident. They purposely over time forgot what their great, 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 great granddaddy Noah taught them. Are you listening? But yet God's a good God. He goes above and beyond. He doesn't do just enough to be good. He goes above and beyond good to be great. He is beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And so he's not ending the story here. It's just the beginning. Think about it. The story of Christ and his people is not ending at this triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. It's beginning. The gospel is going to go forth through these apostles. Thomas, who once doubted, who needed to touch Jesus, is going to travel now to India and go spread the gospel there. And the stories of the Christians reaching India are still told there today. They're going to go reach, reach the barbarians. They're going to go into Europe. They're going to go into Africa. The Ethiopian church is going to claim as its historical right to be one of the first churches born out of the move of God. This is an African religion. This is a Middle Eastern religion. Are you listening to me? This is an Indian religion. This is not just a Europeans, though they got a piece of it as well. And so they're going to hear this message. They're going to receive this message. The Egyptians are going to receive this message. The Coptic church is going to compete with the Ethiopians in Africa to which one was first. And yet we want to just skip ahead and get to that part. And, and that's wonderful that we, we get to the resurrection because without that, this, this part of the narrative is meaningless. But we can't forget the confusion that was around at that time because so often we get confused. So often we forget we're still in the already in the not yet. Up until this time, 4,000 years to our best understanding had passed by of, of their history. 
We say somewhere along the line, if we look at the genealogies and the ages of these people who live mean something, and the scholars have done it, it seems like everything popped off around 4,000 B.C. And at that time, God promised Adam through his wife Eve that her offspring would crush the serpent. And yet at that time of the crushing of the serpent, the serpent would sting the heel as the one foot comes down upon him. They've been waiting for that. Even as you look in the book of Genesis and you see Eve give birth to her child, it almost seems like she thought her firstborn was going to be the Messiah. Problem solved. She was on a microwave timeline of human history. Adam messed up. First baby out of me. Going to be the one that crushes the serpent. Get to work. And yet it doesn't happen that quickly, does it? 4,000 years of human history go by until the time of Christ. And remember all that they had went through. They were brought into captivity not just once, not just twice, but at least three major captivities. They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Assyria. They were slaves in Babylon. And possibly you could count it as a fourth captivity under Greece during the Maccabean period when they revolted. And it gave them some freedom, but then they got crushed. And they got put under subjection again. As the one Jewish man said, all of our festivals go like this. We were in trouble. They wanted to kill us. God delivered us. Now let's eat and party. Now the next one, they wanted to kill us. God delivered us. Now let's eat and party. And so now they're they're almost thinking to themselves in an entitled way, 4,000 years, God, now has to be the time. And can you blame them? Here's Jesus. This is not your dollar store Messiah. This is not your, you know, your, your, your clown. This is not your magic performer. This is the real deal. He's doing what no one else has done. He's opened blinded eyes. No one else had ever did that. And not only is he raising the dead, he's doing it as if he can raise all the dead if he wants to because he calls himself the resurrection and the life. I mean, is it any wonder that at this moment they're ready? They're ready. And yet it's going to end in a crucifixion. How many are happy today that it came to a crucifixion? Because they didn't understand that the Messiah needed to be the lamb sacrificed. That he needed to be that. He was, the Bible says in the New Testament later on, John, the author is going to tell it in Revelation, that he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, this plan was already laid out. God's right on time. This is going right according to schedule. But for these Jewish people, and especially those who are going to be living in Jerusalem, Jesus says, it's going to be so bad, you're just going to have to get up when you see these signs coming and just run out of the city, grab whatever you can. I believe that their destruction of 70 AD is a precursor to what will happen during the time of the Antichrist. And so they were told it's going to get bad, that you're not even going to be able to go back home if you see these things begin to happen and you're from Jerusalem, you better just grab your stuff and get out as soon as you can. That's what's going to be ahead of them. 
And then now in human history, we know after the Bible tells these prophecies that the Jewish people are going to suffer as they continue to hold on to their faith. Even though I don't believe they can enter heaven until they accept Jesus as their Messiah, they will suffer for being God's chosen people because the devil knows who they are and what they mean to God. They'll go through the Holocaust. They'll go through the most horrendous things as future unfolds, and yet they'll still wait for that Messiah. Now, I thank God for the Jewish Christians like Michael Brown and Sid Roth and all of these others that have accepted the Messiah, not only in our generation but in other generations. But my heart breaks like Paul for the people of God because I see still still many of them don't accept him. And we know in the tribulation it's going to get worse. And so we're looking ahead to Jesus' second coming. And yet there are people here that don't understand what is ahead. You see, in his first coming, they thought he was going to come such and such a way. And when that did not happen, they got discouraged and things went from bad to worse as their temples were as their temple was destroyed, as their city was destroyed. And I, I want to prepare you today, friend, even though I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that things can get worse. And if we're not careful, we'll miss it. And we can yet be this close to it. Imagine being this close to your Messiah and yet missing him. Imagine being the Jewish people in the crowd shouting crucify him because you're so discouraged at this point. You're like, that can't be the dude. Like if that was the guy, if this was our Messiah, when they first started spitting on him, he would have stopped it. And if he was our Messiah, when they started beating on him, they would have stopped, you know, he would have stopped it. The fact that the Romans could do all of this to him, just crucify him now. Get him out of our sight. We're done with him. As people often point out, it was more than likely the same ones who were shouting Hosanna were now shouting crucify him. Why could they turn on him so quickly? It was because their hopes were dashed. At this point, they believed it. And, and like I said, maybe their timeline was a little bit off. Okay, we thought he would conquer first, then come to the city. But he'll come to the city, and then he'll conquer. Okay, we're okay with that. But now that he hasn't conquered, you can imagine them thinking to themselves, he must be a blasphemer. He must be a false Christ. That deserves death. You shouldn't have gotten our hopes up like that. We fell for your magic tricks. Kill him. And it's all because of their misunderstanding. And I'm just wondering today, not that we can crucify him, but I'm just wondering today, is the American church betraying Jesus and calling him a blasphemer? His teachings are things that they're ashamed of because they're not woke enough. And now are they willing to throw him out so that they can move on to something else because the Jesus of the Bible or the way that it came from Billy Graham and our heritage, this couldn't be the Jesus that, that we are waiting for. This couldn't be the one. He, he must be coming in a different way. He must be accepting of all lifestyles because if he would allow this to go on, gay pastors and homosexuality in the church, then, then he must not be the conservative one we thought he was. He must not care about those kinds of things. He, you know, we need to throw out the Jesus of, of those archaic, racist, privileged people and move on now to something else. Kind of feels like that in our culture, does it not? Because people don't understand. 
The Bible says to the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years to him. According to Jesus, he's only been gone for the weekend. 2,000 years, two days. He just left on Friday. He's coming back on Sunday. Can I hear an amen from somebody that still believes he's coming back? He's just been gone for the weekend. It took a weekend to solve all of our, our problems, and he's let a weekend pass. According to his time, there was a weekend in our time where he solved all of our problems. Now a weekend in his time where he's letting his kingdom be established. My, my brothers and sisters, do not be ignorant. Do not be ignorant when the world says, where is his second coming? Because everything just keeps going on just as it were. Do not be uh, tempted to turn your back on the Jesus of the Bible because this world has said, we're, we're done with that Jesus. Nothing good has come from that Jesus. Don't let the world confuse you today. Stay in his book, amen, as much as you do Facebook. Make sure you make time for the word. Because if you work the word, the word will work for you. Amen? Th these things are, are, are given to us for our benefit. And it's not like you're trying to bend the facts to fit the situation. No, it's actually exactly what it said. Uh, the Bible said what happened. Many would turn from the faith. So if you see great apostasy, then you know you're getting towards the end. He says these are the beginning of birth pains. He also said that there would be many false Christs. There's more false Christs on our planet now than there's ever been before, and they have more popularity than they've ever had before. Don't get discouraged. Get encouraged. Jesus is coming, the real one. Amen? The Bible says when you hear about wars and rumors of wars, these things are the beginning. How many have been hearing about wars and rumors of wars? When you see disease and famine and pestilence come, and all of these things are happening now in an increasing measure, earthquakes and so forth. This is not us trying to bend the facts like we're some doomsday cult. Well, now we've got to redo Nostradamus' facts again and, and, and make his prophecies fit. No, no, no. This actually goes right along with the plan. The Bible says when you hear of these kinds of things, when you see these kinds of things, you need to be warned that the end is near. And so, brothers and sisters, they didn't understand it, but thankfully God was patient with them, and they understood it afterward, and now they can share it with us. Let us learn from their mistakes, and let us understand what the second coming is. Amen? Because we are in a John the Baptist generation. We are the forerunners of the second coming of the Lord. Amen? Verse 17, now, that, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. You want to talk about free advertising, just imagine Lazarus raised from the dead telling everybody to come to church now. Isn't that exciting? I mean, that's, that's free advertising right there. Lazarus is out there saying, hey, man, I was dead. Hey, tell him I was dead. Yeah, he was dead, and I got called out, came out like a mummy, but he said, loose him and let him go. Here I am, and I want to tell you he's here. Jesus is here. He may do the same thing for you. They began to spread the word. Verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, talking about Lazarus, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And even right now, at that moment, you can see that they almost want to give up on their plan to get him out of the way. And yet they find a crack in the armor which was let there by God on purpose to fulfill other prophecies, they will eventually find Judas to betray him. Now think about this. Why 
is the devil going to use Judas? Because we've learned in chapter prior that Judas was a thief and his heart was already not right. What made Judas's heart not right is that the Messiah wasn't doing what he wanted him to do. The heart of betrayal comes from people that don't like how Jesus is Jesus. They want Jesus to be like them. And so Judas is going to be the perfect partner in this equation. And if you want to know my theological understanding because of statements like this and even what the Bible says, if they knew, the powers of Satan knew what they were doing when they crucified him, they would not have done it because by doing that, they became disarmed. I actually believe that they themselves were confused. The powers of Satan were confused. God's plan had become a mystery to everyone involved. Not only the disciples, but the powers of darkness. Because they did not know what was in front of them. And this shows us that the devil is not all powerful. It's not a yin and yang. It's not two equal and opposite forces going against one another. The Bible says when Satan rebelled, he was cast out of heaven and fell like lightning. You ever seen how fast lightning comes down? That's how fast the battle was over. But what is happening now is over our, the battleground is not for God and his heaven and for those things. The battleground is for our souls. And so with, with our free will, with our own volition, whose side will we be on? And so God sends his son to woo us to him, to choose, uh, to call us and to choose us and to make us his own. But we have a choice as well. Will we fall for the lies of the serpent? Will we be deceived by his way of doing things or will we submit to Jesus' way of doing things? I pray that Satan can find no partners in his betrayal in this end time generation as he did in the first coming. Not in this church, amen? But I do know that it will happen and I believe it's the Roman Catholic Church, the whore of Babylon. She will play a whore for the Antichrist, lift up her skirt and give the world a sense of religion with the name of Jesus sprinkled on top. And because of that and that kind of acceptance, what we saw with the vaccine will go to a whole nother level. Because people in the Vatican will support what the Antichrist is doing, this one world religion will have validity and will even have, like I said, a bit of Christianity sprinkled in it. And so I just pray that none of you fall for it, that there will not be a Judas spirit here, even though those things were prophesied to happen. Amen? But that's what we can look forward to, that as it was then, so it shall be now. Looking at that, that passage where it says they call him Hosanna, let's see where they got that from. The psalm book of the church, the hymnal of the church and the Jewish people is Psalm 118.25. The Jewish people as well as Christians used the psalms for their hymn book. This is where they get that party song from, Psalm 118.25. Lord, save us. There you see it, it's spelled out like save us, but it really just means Hosanna. So Lord, Hosanna. Hosanna is what it literally means in Hebrew. Lord, grant us success. Look at verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is what? The Lord is what? The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. 
with boughs in his hand, join in the festival, the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Now go to John chapter 1 because it talks about God having light. Has anybody heard about Jesus in light before? Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the what? The light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Just looked up the word bow for you because I didn't know what that was. It's the palm branch. Did anybody know what bow was? Not a bow of a ship, but here, B-O-U-G-H, means the palm branches. So going back to just let them see it. My brother, Psalm 118, it says that they'll have that in their hands, keeping John as well open. But I want you to see this. This prophecy was about them, and it was about him, Jesus, and the people are speaking it out by faith. But once again, what happens? They get discouraged when it doesn't go down the way that they thought it would go down. They thought that Jesus would come in conquering, that the whole world would be bowing at his feet. And yet they see here that it's going to end in crucifixion. Highlight the word bows in hand. With bows in hand, join the festal procession. This was prophesied that they would do such a thing. The palm branches, the shouting, the going after their king and saying, God is with us. Now let's go to the, to the passage speaking about him coming on a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, leaving those passages up there, please. It's not just any old animal that he comes riding in on. He has to come riding in on this kind of an animal because it was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a what? A donkey, thank you, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Well, highlight Righteous and victorious. Were they wrong to think that the battle would happen first? I mean, it's a way you could understand it, right? He's coming in victorious. He, he's not going to go get the victory. He already has the victory. But hold on. Rome is still Rome at that time. Does Jesus not have the victory? No, of course he does. Where do I believe Jesus has had the victory from? The temptation in the garden. Uh, excuse me, the temptation in the, uh, the wilderness. The temptation in the garden will confirm that he's willing to go all the way. But the victory that he must win is the one that is in the wilderness facing the three temptations that Satan gave Adam and Eve. If you go back through the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, how many know Jesus was tempted? He was tempted based on his identity. He was tempted based on his need of food. And he was then, uh, which would be like the lust of the, the flesh. And then he was tempted on worship, on who he would serve, on whether bowing down to Satan and receiving an easy way out or accepting the path that God had for him. When you look at Adam and Eve and the temptations that they faced, being tempted in their identity, has God said, you know, doubting the purpose and the plan that God had for them, and then seeing the fruit that 
that it was good and it could enlighten them, and then choosing to be gods rather than worshiping God. Can I hear an amen? They fell for that temp- that that those three temptations. They fell for that sin that was in the three temptations. So it was one sin, three temptations. They fell for it, and Jesus conquered it. Do you see that? But what victory did they think he was going to have at that moment? The victory over people. The victory of making his boot that which steps on his enemies. The Bible literally calls this the wrath of God. The grapes of God's wrath coming down on people. Him ruling them with an iron scepter. Him splattering their blood. I mean, it's gross, but this is the idea that they had in their mind. So the victory that they had, uh, that Jesus uh, rather was already going to have coming into Jerusalem, would be stained with blood. That would be the victory, the victory of conquering people. And yet they didn't understand that Jesus first had to conquer sin. Can I hear an amen <laughs> that Jesus not only conquered evil, but he conquered uh, not only evil people, but he conquered evil itself. You see, that's what people don't get. If he didn't have a victory over sin, when he came to judge sinners, everybody would have been stomped on. Everybody. You see, a Jewish person might have said, well, not me because I'm Jewish. Oh, hold on, Jewish people. You don't get the victory of the Messiah without your sacrifice. Remember the Passover lamb? But the Bible says that was all just a shadow, not the phone itself, but the shadow of the phone. What would you rather have, the phone or the shadow? What would you rather have, the Passover lamb or Jesus Christ? The Passover lamb was just the shadow, but Jesus is the fulfillment. So no Jewish person would have made it into the kingdom of God either because there would not have been any remission of sins because it wasn't. Everybody listen. It wasn't a lamb that sinned in the Garden of Eden. It was a human. A human's blood needed to be spilled. Hence, Abraham being asked, do you have enough faith to do what I'm going to do, Abraham? Now we know the story, so see it in that way. Father's going to give his son. Abraham, would you give me yours? And when Abraham passes that test and shows that God is just and fair in what he does, he says, don't worry about it. I'm not going to require that of you because I myself will provide. Jehovah Jireh comes from there. I myself will provide. God himself is going to come and be that for us. And so they didn't understand the kinds of victory that the Messiah must win. He must win a victory over sin. Go to Isaiah 53 because is that not also in the scriptures? Isaiah 53, someone had to carry the iniquity of the people. A suffering servant. Before the glorious victory of conquering the bad people, bad people had to have the chance to become good people. Otherwise, all would have been bad. Because you weren't going to be made good just because you came through a certain lineage. You weren't going to be good just because you did a couple good works every now and then. You needed to be rid of your sin, which stained every man and woman's soul. And what can make me 
white as snow, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No other fount I know. Come on, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so look, uh, as we look at this prophecy, scroll down for me, please. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities now watch this he's the prince of peace so bring peace and take out the romans but hold on i needed peace first my soul needed peace. I just don't need evil people to leave. I need evil to leave these people. This person right here, are you listening to me? And the punishment that brought us peace, shalom, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Will he judge evil people on this world? In this world, absolutely. But he came first to rid the people of evil. Before he came to conquer the world, he came to conquer our hearts. Before he came to judge sinners, he came to save sinners. That's what this triumphal entry is teaching us, going back to the passage there in Zechariah. He's coming on this donkey because he's showing us he's victorious. And in what way is he victorious? He's victorious over the temptations that had plagued us. And that's why we could not save ourselves. We needed someone to save us. What's the victories that lie ahead? The victories over death, hell, and the grave. And then what is the victory that we're now looking forward to? The victory of him coming to judge the earth and set up his kingdom. So you could say there's a victory over sin. That's what he's had here. He, and the Bible says he became perfect by what he learned through his suffering. That time of fasting and overcoming the temptation perfected in him, not his, his actual being because he was perfect in his being, but it perfected that which we needed in moral character. Someone had to show that they could live without sin. And he did it not, everybody get this, he did it not as a superhuman. He did it as a human totally like us, but yielded fully to the things of God. If you want to learn more about that, read Hebrews. He did not use the God ways about him or the God privileges in his divinity. He did not use that to overcome his temptation. He did it as one of us. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Amen. So he comes lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. How could he bring this about if the blood of the covenant did not come through him? The blood of the covenant is what ensures that the victory over the enemies is going to happen. But the blood of the covenant, please highlight it, please. It says he's doing all this because of the blood of the what? 
the covenant. How many know you can't establish that covenant on animals? You needed the Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God. Amen? So now do you see how the prophecy comes in fullness? He comes to the city in victory, and then he's going to give his blood in covenant, and when he comes back, he's going to do all of these things that we read about in Revelation, as well as Zechariah and Isaiah, because Isaiah tells the story of a conquering king as well, not just a suffering servant. But his blood must be shed. And isn't that what he says at communion, which we're about ready to get into in 13? This is the blood of the covenant that I make with you. Somebody say the blood of the covenant. Thank you. It is the blood of the covenant that will turn us from sinners to saints. It is the blood of the covenant that will establish God's rule and reign as king. Going back now to the book of John. He comes in on the donkey. They're shouting Hosanna. They're laying down the palm branches. This is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. How many believe that's a good day? That's a good day, and we should rejoice in that. But how many know it doesn't end there? How many, I said, how many know it doesn't end there? Amen. Would you refresh that, please, brother? Because I have some more scriptures in there that I added later. Let's go now to Revelation and show how he comes the second time. Are you ready? I said, are you ready? Come on, you better be ready because he's coming whether you're ready or not. Here I come. This train is coming one way or another. Choo-choo. You better hop on it or get ran over by it. Amen? I said amen. Don't get tired on me. Come on, help me preach. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and onward. He's coming back, though, and he's going to do those parts of Zechariah. That's when I talk to my Jewish friend. I go, oh, yeah, you're right. He will do all of those things. Oh, yeah, you're right. He's going to establish his kingdom. Oh, yeah, you're right. He's going to crush the enemies of God. Oh, yeah, you're right. But listen, it's only going to be, you're only going to be on the good side if you accept him now. So my Jewish friend, accept your Mashiach, Yeshua. Amen? Because if they think he's going to come and just say, well done, my good and faithful servants, because you were a Jew and stayed a Jew, no. Jewish people must become Messianic Jews. They must receive the Messiah, understand the timeline. You don't get saved in the end just because you're a Jew by religion. You only get saved in the end if you've accepted the gentle king who came first riding on a colt. You only get saved if you got the blood of a covenant. And it's not the blood of that animal that they're trying to now shed, uh, shed as they're building up their third temple. Watch Jerusalem. It's a part of our hourglass to look at the time running short. Now that they're thinking about having these heifers and these sacrifices begin to start because they haven't had it for so many years. But it's not those animals that provide the blood of that covenant. Let me just take a pause here because I love Jewish people and there's a great population here in Chicago. Please do not argue with a Jewish person just from the New Testament. That is like you telling them cat in the hat stories. Now we know the word of God has power and authority, so yes, it's beneficial in that way, but you're not speaking to them in the language they understand. Go back to those passages and explain to them from what they accept already as scripture and show them the contradictions they have without having 
Christ as their Messiah. In other words, just take a pause here. Daniel says that the Messiah would come in a 400 years time span from his prophecies. How many remember that when we did our Revelation series? And so you need to show them where is your Messiah because the timeline has already gone away for him to come. And if they go, well, that's just metaphorical. No, it says he'll come to that temple before it's destroyed. And the temple that Jesus came to was destroyed a few years later. How else could it be understood? You guys get what I'm saying there? And then you have to explain to them Isaiah 53 and say, where is your suffering Messiah then? According to your timeline, he's just, you know, kicking everybody's butt. He's just always a victorious king. Explain to me Isaiah 53. And if you want to be, you know, not not a little bit tricky with them, but I've never done this, but I've heard people have done it. Uh, You could say, let me... Let me read something to you first, and, and let me ask you who it's, t- who it's talking about. And most Jewish people don't know their scriptures very well, so you could read Isaiah 53 to them. I've heard people have done this. Jewish people have done it with their own people. And after they read Isaiah 53, they go, oh, well, that's talking about Jesus. And then you go, yeah, that's right, but guess what? It's in the Old Testament. You could try that. I don't know if it works, but try it, right? Because... How clear is it there is a suffering servant? Where's your suffering servant? And then you could show them in Zechariah and say, well, he's victorious when he comes in. Well, let me ask you a question. Is our only problem bad people? Oh, okay, so our Messiah, uh, you know, the Messiah comes and he just beats up everybody. Okay, has that solved the problem of the world? Because world governments have done that before. Hasn't there been nations that have, uh, world leaders that have taken other, over other nations? Did utopias come just because of that? What is so special about the Messiah's utopia? If all you're saying is that a man comes from heaven or a person from earth, depending on how they view the Messiah, and just conquers everybody, how has that changed the world? How has that brought peace? If you don't have shalom, peace here, if you don't win the battle first here of the heart, how does evil leave a nation? By leaving the hearts of its people. That's why we can't do it through all the political reform, and though it's good to be involved in those things, and we can't do it through police officers and and regulation, although those things are good and helpful, but it has to come through the changing of human hearts. How does a nation change? Through the changing of human hearts, and that can only happen by the blood of the covenant. Any other reform will only be temporary. Amen? And so we look here at Revelation 5.5. Then one of the elders said to me, this is a picture of heaven, looking at who's going to open the scroll and bring the judgments of God. See, this complements perfectly with the Old Testament. Because really, who's going to bring the judgments? I mean, is an angel worthy to do it? And by the way, every time you read in Zechariah, and and if I have time, I'll show you some of these passages, because I've mentioned them before. Every time you see the judgment coming, it's actually the Lord doing it. But hold on, no one can see the Lord, the Bible says, and live. And so how is he going to come on the earth and do all of these things? Oh, he's going to use the Messiah. So the Messiah is going to come in the name of the Lord and do all of these things. Well, how is any human being worthy to bring these kinds of judgments to God's creation? Does everybody see the contradiction? Think about it. Who's going to judge? God's going to judge. But is he actually going to judge according to the Jewish people? No, no, he's going to use his Messiah to do it. That's what they agree upon, right? The Messiah is going to do God's judgment. Well, hold on. How does he get the ability to do that? How does he get worthy to do that? Could Adam, I mean, they might say, well, because he's perfect. Well, could Adam as a perfect person bring all the judgment? You see, it doesn't make any sense. The Messiah has to be divine as well. And that's where you can show them in the Bible that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. 
not two lords, but two persons using the title of Lord. Are you listening? There's one God, but there are people who use that title, and they are that God, one in nature, three in person. And Jesus, when he was teaching the Jewish people, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, David talking, the Lord said to my Lord, wow, there's two there, but there's not two gods. There's one God in nature, but there's three persons who are known to the Jewish people as God. And the third person, the Shekinah, the glory of God is always with them. Can I hear an amen? And so here you see in Revelation this problem. Who's going to bring the judgment? Who really can do this? The Father's not leaving his throne to come and do it. None of the angels are actually worthy of it themselves. They, they can be sent to do it, but they can't kick this thing off. They don't have the power and authority to come to earth and oversee this and do this. None of them do. And then one of the elders sees everybody, uh, everybody's weeping, and then one of the elders, including John, seeing the revelation, the elder says, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. See, he's not only the son of David, he's also the creator of David. Amen? The root of David has what? Triumph. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so how does he get the right to do this? By God's justice. Then I saw a what? A lamb for God, everybody to get this, for God even to judge the world, God first had to love the world. Don't skip over John 3.16 and think it's not important to the big picture. It's everything. It's the most popular verse in the world for a reason. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God would not be just to judge the world any other way unless he himself came as the son to sacrifice himself for our sins to then rightfully bring the judgment upon those who rejected him. Come on, let that bake your noodle a little bit. Come on, got one hallelujah. That should get somebody else excited in the church. Think about that. Why did he have to do it? Why not just send an angel? Why not just say, okay, angel, you go die for my people? Why, why couldn't it just have been a normal human being? Why did it have to be him coming in the form of a, a man, taking on every personality of a man, being just like us? Because he himself is a just God. He wouldn't ask you to do nothing that he himself would not do. And if you messed it up and, and we make the problem and he made us, he's going to make the solution. He will not take the easy way out. Somebody say, that's my God. Come on. That's not the God of Islam who stays up there and does nothing but send a few prophets every now and then to do his dirty work. This is the God who enters into his own creation. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who met with them personally throughout their times and places. This is the one who met face-to-face -face with Moses until his face glowed. Talk about get your shine on. This is that God, Emmanuel, God with us. Where is he? There he is riding the colt. Why is he doing that? Because he loves us. Why? Because he loves us. He so loved us that he sent and came and redeemed. Then I saw the, lame, the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. 
Only God can be at that throne. Father, Son, and Spirit. You'll see in the end, it's the Father and Son sharing the same throne that the Holy Spirit comes from, the river of life. He's standing right there at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he has the seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And we've talked about that before in Isaiah, which each one of those spirits are. It's the Holy Spirit manifesting in these different ways. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne from his father. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders all fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp. This is where they get the idea of harps being in heaven. But it's really not necessarily for you. It's for these creatures and elders who have it. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls of incense, full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. Now, don't let any Roman Catholic say, well, this is why you can pray to saints. No, no. It's not taking, scroll up for me, please. It's not taking the prayers to the elders and then giving them to God. It's taking the prayers to God and giving them to God. Amen? So as prayers come to God, they become like incense that these elders get to hold. And ain't nobody praying anybody but Jesus in the Bible, baby. Amen? And they sang a new song. Here is this new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why are you worthy? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Tell any black Hebrew Israelite dressing up on street corners what this Bible verse says. Amen. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests. This is what the King James says. But a kingdom and priests here in the NIV to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Can I hear another amen? Can you bless the Lord today if you believe it? One more passage in the book of Revelation. Now go to Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, and remember, you're clapping for that judgment. Remember, you clapped for it, right? I didn't trick you. You clapped on your own, did you not? Now notice what you're clapping for, because after that last seal is opened, he himself now comes down. So he had the right and authority to command judgment upon the creation that he himself had created and he himself had become like unto them and he himself had died for them. He had the right to do that and now he has the right to come down and to finish this, finish the business of judgment. Revelation chapter 19, please, verse 11. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 should scare the hell out of you. Amen? This is not Ricky Bobby's baby Jesus. Oh, baby Jesus, sweet baby Jesus. This is not Ricky Bobby's baby Jesus. Even some of my friends that are Christians, they tease like that. And I say, be careful when you tease like that because you are taken away from the fear of the Lord. People need to fear God. People need to understand how he's coming. He is not coming to play. There is not going to be a discussion. There will not be a debate. You are not his judge. Even though I love the movie God is Not Dead, it makes you out to be the judge and put Jesus on the witness stand. And so you get to sit back and hear different people present their opinions about him and then you make your decision. I just don't think you're Jesus or you're God or whatever. No, you're not that one. You are the one now being judged. Amen. You're not standing over him. He is standing over you. And the Bible gives us this Im imagery not to now make us so afraid we cannot worship him, 
worship him and love him because perfect love casts out all fear and we shouldn't fear his punishment, but we should see this as the reality to anyone who rejects him. Amen? So if you, in, in other words, if you don't want the lamb, you get the lion. Can I hear an amen? And them crowns are going to stack up that day. He's going to be taking a lot of crowns off heads that day. Can I hear an amen? He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's going to be stacking up crowns. He's going to take them from every president, every world leader, and he's going to say, bow before me. And they will all drop their knees and bow. Amen. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. This is what they were looking for. Hold on, it's coming. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are how many crowns? Many crowns, because they all belong to him. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. This is amazing. He has a secret code on him that just is there to freak you out, you know? Like, what does that mean? I don't know, but you better listen to him. You know, I mean, it's just powerful. I just love that right there, that he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He keeps mysteries about himself. The armies of heaven were following with him. How many are going to be there? Amen. I'm a pre-tribulation rapture, folks, so I'm there as well. Some want to be here when he comes. No, thank you. But if I have to be, I will be. Amen. I'm not quitting on him, in other words. Amen. It's, and sometimes people say, I'm a, I'm a pan-tribulationist. It's all going to pan out. That's right. However it works, I'm there with it. I'm not giving up on him. His name, the name written on him, no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe. Now, notice this right here. He is dressed in a robe dipped in what? Blood. Now, sometimes theologians uh, debate, is it his own blood that's at the altar that was presented before God in heaven, or is it the blood of his enemies? He already has crowns on his head, so there could be the enemies that he's already fought, and now we're seeing an image of what's been done from post him beating everybody up. Or this could be uh, the blood, you know, so the blood could either be himself or others, and if it was others, it would be because he's battled and take those crowns. If it's, if it's his blood, then we have to explain where those crowns came from, and maybe God just gave, the Father gave him a bunch of crowns before he came down. Either way, his robe is dipped in what? Uh, it's, it's dipped in pixie dust, you said? It's, it's, it's dipped in sprinkles? <laughs> you, you, unicorn uh, stuff? <laughs> Rainbows? I can't even think of stuff. I'm just thinking of like the most craziest like fairy tale stuff. No, his robe is dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's where that phrase comes from, the wrath of God or the grapes of his wrath. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this tattoo. He has this name written. What is it? King of kings and what? Lord of lords. Come on, somebody. Can you stand up and give it up for Jesus today? Amen. We love you, Jesus. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? Going back to our passage but how does he come this day? How does he come the day he first came to Jerusalem on a donkey? Looking as if he was gentle and kind and wouldn't hurt anybody. 
In other words, on that day that Jesus came on a donkey, your children would have ran up to him and been like, oh, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Everybody would have wanted to be around him. He's gentle. He's coming in kind. Soft eyes, flowing hair. Still masculine. Can I hear an amen? Coming in kindness. Coming in compassion. As we learn throughout his time there, he's still going to heal. He's still going to help people. He's going to be patient. That's how he came. And everybody get this. And how did we as a human race treat him? We crucified him. People say, well, I wish God would just show himself. Yeah, he already did, and we killed him. That's what we did with the most gentlest person we've ever known. That's what we did with the person who raises the dead. That's what we did with the one who opens blind eyes, uh, sets children free from demons. What did we do with them as a human race? Oh, we crucified him. Why? To show that we still had the seed of Adam and Eve that the serpent gave us in us. We needed our hearts to be changed. We needed a new DNA. We needed a new life. And so he came to save our lives before he would judge our lives. If you're here today and you yet don't know Jesus as the gentle king, as the suffering servant who suffers for you, for me, for our sins, I adjure you today, I compel you today to please be reconciled with God. Because this is how he wants you to know he feels about you today. This is how much he loves you. This is his heart for you. You are welcome to be around him. We should not forget this Jesus, even as we wait for the Jesus of judgment to come. Same Jesus, but you get my point. The way he comes in Revelation. Because as he does that, the judgment and the grapes of his wrath, the stomping on the nations, that then goes away. He doesn't keep stomping on people. He rules them in justice. And we get to go back to seeing him as our kind, gentle king. Don't mess with him, but he's our kind, gentle king. Amen? And so you don't today get to see him as the kind, gentle king unless you receive him as that now. And I just pray for everyone here that if you have any doubts or any confusion that you get it cleared up before you leave here today. Talk to one of our prayer workers. Go out for lunch with someone that comes to this church. Study these scriptures and reconcile your life with God today because time is short and no one is promised tomorrow. But if you're ready, even right now, I'm just going to pray for you and you can pray on your own. Father, if anyone is ready to accept you as their Lord and Savior now, I pray that you will hear their heart cry today. Pray something like this. Father, forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus is my Savior. He was crucified for me and rose again so I could have new life. He's my King. And then now talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, I ask you to be my King. Change my life. And then ask the Holy Spirit to come in and make you a new creation. Holy Spirit, change me from the inside out. Make me new. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pray to our God today in the name of Jesus. Those who are already Christians, as these new folks are praying, but you're already a Christian, and you're not living right, you're maybe backslidden, or you're making compromises, would you repent right now and say, Father, forgive me 
for not living like the way you've commanded me to. May Jesus forgive me. Holy Spirit, wash me with the blood of Jesus today. And let Jesus know you're going to live for him every day of your life. Should you stumble and fall, you're going to get back up. A few moments right now. If you're not a Christian, confess Jesus. If you're already a Christian but you're having compromise, confess your sins. And then the rest of us, would you begin to worship him? Begin to thank him. Your king came on a, on a donkey. He came gentle to win your heart, to forgive you, to change you. Would you learn, learn to worship him in the beauty of his holiness if you haven't already? But those who know how, do it now. Worship him in his holiness. Worship him in his love. There's nobody like Jesus. Oh, Lord, I worship you.